They called him the cool cat. Maybe it was because of his stoic demeanor, always chill and in control, or maybe it was because of the way he slithered past defenders on the basketball court. Smooth and effective. Either way, watching him play was always a sight to behold. From his days as a green archer to being the top draft pick in the PBA, true hoopers know there was no other talent quite like Mike Cortez. I'm Naveen Ganglani, and I'll catch you at the buzzer. So, ladies and gentlemen, today we are joined by Mike Cortez. For our younger listeners, you guys might not remember what he used to do back in the day, start of the millennium, but let me tell you how, ma- how much of a bad boy this guy was. You know, he, you just got to go watch the highlights. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us. How are you doing, buddy? I hope you and the family are doing well. I'm uh, doing great, doing great, considering the, you know, the situation. Um, still, still living, um, still healthy, got a healthy family, so I can't complain. That's awesome. Thanks for having me, by the way. Oh, um, my, my pleasure. Thanks for saying yes on short notice, too, you know. That was really nice of you. I hope that was a bad boy in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, me and my friends used to call you guys the bad boys of the UEAP. Because of the the style you brought to the game, you know? The style you brought to a league in a conservative country. I thought that was really interesting. You guys were really, like, really hitting it off when Allen Iverson was bringing some culture to the NBA, too. So, it really went along really well. I didn't look at it as I was that they were copying me. But looking back, we kind of brought a different, different um, look to the UAP, maybe. Oh, 1,001% for sure. So, <laughs> Lasal and the UAP is obviously going to be a, a really good topic. But before we take a trip back down memory lane, let me ask you first, what are you up to nowadays? Because I believe you retired from the PBA, if not two seasons ago, one season ago. So, what are you doing? Uh, yeah, I just retired at uh, the beginning of this year. Um, okay. The start of the new year was supposed to be this, what, this past March when it started and um, decided to hang my shoes up, man. I just couldn't, you know, I couldn't, I still love to play. It was just tough for me to get, get to the court. I mean, get to practice and having all the aches and pains and trying to um, stay away from injuries and stuff. So, I mean, I played 16 years. I think that was pretty good enough for me. Um, But now uh, I've been helping out with Benilde. Uh, with Coach T.Y. Tang and Charles Chu. Um, we were set to join a couple leagues, but the pandemic hit and trying to get the positives out of, out of these negatives. Right. How's coaching been treating you so far? Like, have there been instances where the young guys in the team are like, hey, Coach Mike, I saw you back in the day when I was like four years old or something. <laughs> I was getting that when I was playing. <laughs> wow. I remember uh, I was playing for Morocco, and um, Jai Reyes was on our team. He said, hey, I used to watch you when I was grade six. Oh, I was no. like, oh, man, come on. That's <laughs> kind of when so, you know, yeah. Uh, the guys that I'm coaching at Bernil are almost the same age as my son. So, you know, I kind of look at them as, you know, they're kids of mine. And, you know, I just try to share my experiences and my knowledge with them. And I enjoyed it for the first um, month that I was in it. It's, it's different. It's different from playing and, and finally retiring, man. I just wanted to, I always loved, love training, training professionals, even college guys. I've been training my kids for the longest time. And <clears throat> so I just wanted to try coaching and, and see if it was my forte. And for the first month, I really enjoyed it. Um, 
you, I mean, going into it, I really thought like these players are in college that they should know, you know, what, what is what, but they, a lot of them don't. And, you know, I just try to share with them my experiences and, and, um, understand, try to get them to understand how to play basketball the, the right way. Like I've, I've been taught to play and it teaches you a lot about discipline and, and how to, um, talk to kids and how to really um how do you say interact with right kids like that i mean I, those guys are are age of my age of my son so i look at them as almost kids of mine so um but for the most part it was fun it was fun um i would like to have a better chance to i mean more time to to coach but for the most part it was fun i enjoyed it you know, like you said, there's been some of a learn, some bit of a learning curve for you to like pass on your knowledge to the kids. They don't grasp it right away, right? And I think that's the job of a coach to like really be patient with the boys to help them develop because that's the key to college systems development. With that said, now that you are going through the coaching phase of your career, does it give you some newfound appreciation for what Coach Franz used to do for you when you were those kids' age back in the day? Definitely, definitely, um, definitely. Um, like he had, he had a lot of patience with us, and um, not everybody's the same. Like you have twenty guys on a team, and you got twenty different personalities. So I could only imagine having being able to talk to each one and having everybody buy in. You know, it's it's, it's got to be tough. So. <clears throat> I think with him, it was it was more of unconditional love for us. Um, mm -hmm. He didn't baby anybody. He treated everybody the same. Um, he knew how to push buttons, and he understood sure. like, <laughs> <laughs> and he understood like what what how to win championships. I mean, that's the bottom line: how to win games and how to win championships. So, um, I kind of brought that same mentality when I was at when I was with Benilde, you know try not to be too soft and try to be um, disciplined, but also know where to pull back a little bit. And um, it's just different. It's just different coaching because you got to go from point A to point B to point C. These kids nowadays, they want to go from A to Z real quick. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so you got to really break it down for them. And, but for me, experience is the best, best teacher. So you kind of let them go through it through practices, through training, through ex to, through tune-up games, and then you, you you try to point out their mistakes. But I think first got to just let them go through it and experience it first. You know, you were definitely right about Coach France not babying anyone. I mean, some of the best legends and stories out of La Salle were the screaming matches he and Mac Mac used to have or the times he'd kick Mac Mac out of practice. I'm sure Mac Mac wasn't the only one, though. But what was... What do you remember from the first time you met Coach Franz? And are there any stories from back in the day that people might not know that you can share? Um, huh. He, I mean, Coach Franz, he was my first coach here in the Philippines, right? And so um, I didn't know anything on here in the Philippines before I came here. You know, I didn't even know there was professionally let alone the UAP college. Um, Cause back in my time, there was no YouTube. 
it was <laughs> it was pretty much VHS and word, and of, mouth. word of mouth pretty yeah. much. And so I was surprised when um, a couple of LaSalle alumni were in my, my city and they were watching me through high school. So you know, that could call me by surprise. <clears throat> so when they told me that going to LaSalle would be something like going to North Carolina or Duke in the States, that kind of, you know, raised my eyebrows a little bit. But going back to Coach Franz, he's here, and him just being a, um, a longtime PBA player also, I, I, I'm able to learn from him. So he played on the national team. He was part of championship teams. And just being around him for my first year and being able to sit out my first year, that kind of um, helped me get used to playing because I wasn't put into the fire right away when mm -hmm. I got here. I had to sit out one year. Right. And so um, he guided me through the practices, and I think he kind of knew also that my 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 talent level was already already almost at the PBA level. So he kind of got on. He didn't get on me as much as the other guys, and so we we had a good chemistry together. Mm -hmm. Were Were there times where you guys clashed as well? Because you know, he demands a lot of, out of the guys who handle the ball for his offense, and that's not an easy offense to run. Um, no, he kind of, he kind of, well, I was, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't creating any problems for the team, you know what I mean? And there was one time when I, <laughs> when I, uh, like, it was, a, it was maybe a week before the opening, and I got, I got a tattoo. I went, to, I went, I went to Cardimar and got a tattoo. I just, I don't know why I did it. I just, I just made a, did a, um, spur of the moment type thing. What and kind then of I had practice. was it? Uh, it was just a cross on my arm, oh, but it was classic. big. Yeah. It was a big, it was, you can really see it. So you, you can imagine I'm trying to hide it in practice. I got plastic wrapped around my arm and with a t-shirt, but you could still see it. And he didn't say anything for the first, you know, through the whole practice. And then in the end, he was just like, if anybody else gets any more tattoos on you, you're going to get kicked off the team. And I knew he was talking to me, of course. So I think we had another guy who on the on the practice squad. He also got tattooed with me. So that's one of the <laughs> one of the things he got mad at me for. But when it came on the court, I mean, he hardly called me out or, or um, yelled at me for anything. It was usually he would yell at us as a team, and I kind of relay, you know, the stuff that he – was trying to really talk about, you know what I mean? I was always the, the guy to diffuse any situation that I could and try to keep guys, you know, focused and concentrating on the game. I mean, that's why you got the nickname, the cool cat, right? Always cool in the court. I guess, man. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, when you entered the UAP in 2000, it didn't take long for you to really make an impact because, first of all, you guys won championships your first two years in the league. And you were in the mythical five, 2000 and 2002. So your first season, which wasn't your rookie season because you did sit out, but technically was also your first season, so to say. Yeah. You did make an impact yeah. right away. Was it because you feel the system of coach trans, you were comfortable in it right away, or do you... Did you just really click with the Philippine basketball way, you know, right um, away? Well, like I told you, man, the, the first year I was here in 99, I already played a year of college ball in the U.S. I played for a Division II Cal State LA. My high school coach was a big John Wooden uh, fan. 
So everything he taught us was fundamentals, fundamentals, fundamentals. And, you know, doing it at the time in high school, you really really don't know what, what, you know, what you're doing. Right. But, and it wasn't until when I got to college and to the pros where doing the proper fundamentals, I mean, learning the proper fundamentals in high school is, gave me the, always the the upper hand. Mm -hmm. And that first year in 99, when I was able to redshirt, I played in the Father Martin Cup. I played in the NCRA. I played in the friendship games. Um, I was already playing against tough competition like Lyceum, New Era. I was, and going against Dino Aldeguer and Matt Kuan and BJ Manalo and Monose every day in practice for that first year. So those guys really ripened me up for that, my rookie year in 2000. So um, a lot of people don't see, you know, that stuff. They don't see the behind the scenes stuff. They only see, oh, my first game in the UAP, he played so well. But all that, you know, before leading up to it is what kind of ripened me for that, for that situation. You won two championships and you made three finals in the UAP. And the first year you guys beat FEU, who, you know, in my opinion, as someone who also went to LaSalle and someone who's been following UAP hoops for a while, I feel like in terms of basketball, the rivalry of LaSalle with FEU, just basketball, is somewhat in the same level as Ateneo because when FEU and LaSalle go to head, head-to-head, it's always a crazy battle. But for you personally, was Ateneo-LaSalle a level just above everything else? You know, coming in, I'm not a, a full-blown green archer. You know what I mean? I've only been a green archer for four years, I could say. You know what I mean? And so I didn't really understand the rivalries that were, were being talked about. You know, they were always, I mean, when, I, when they were recruiting me, they were always hyping up Ateneo LaSalle, Ateneo LaSalle, of course. You know, you can lose any team but the blue team. <laughs> and it wasn't, until a, it wasn't until a 99 when I sat on the bench and I really felt, you know, the, the intensity of a real Ateneo LaSalle game. And, but for me, um, every game was, was pretty intense. I mean, playing against FEU is a big battle. Playing against UST, I kind of treated every game the same way. I try to, at least. It's just some crowds are bigger than the other. You know what I mean? When you get into, when you're playing in front, like an Araneta Coliseum, which seats 30,000 people, standing room only, of course there's going to be a intensity level that you can't really, you can't really um, explain. And then you play somebody like NU or UE at the, at a at a smaller gym, of course, the intensity level is going to be different. Right. You know what I mean? So, but every team was tough. Every team was tough. Of course, we had that target on our back, and every team wanted to knock us off the top. And for the most part, we I think we held our own. Yeah, the reason why you guys always had the target on your back was not just because you guys were defending champions. You were back to back to back. And at one point, back-to-back-to-back-to-back champions. Did it feel like you guys were on top of the world as you were winning championships? I mean, the peak of that championship run, what do you remember? Because you guys weren't just, you know, the big dogs in the court. You guys were also the big guys in campus, you know? You guys were rock stars. What was it like living in that time? (laughs) Especially because there was no social media yet and everything. So the passion and the fire really felt different. Um, of course, we're, we were well known on the on campus, and I didn't really think anything of it. You know what I mean? It was just, I mean, I, I felt I was just a regular student. You know, I, I mean, we'd get, get some extra uh, bonus points from our teachers, but, <laughs> but I mean, it was just, it's just, it's just competing. You know what I mean? Right. It's just, um, I think we, we didn't get, 
the, the thing about our team was from 99 until 2002 when we won all those championships, even, even when we lost, we didn't let our heads get bigger than, than they were. And I think that was, that was the reason why we were winning a lot because sometimes when you win, you know, you get a big head, you forget to do the little things. But every day in practice, I could say from 99 until 2002, we got after each other. And that was kind of the kind of the culture that we wanted to um, to build for the future, you know, Green Archers. When, after me, it was J.V. Casho, Joseph Yo. Um, after them, it's L.A. Revilla. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we kind of wanted to build a culture. It, I mean, no matter who was the coach, it, it was just the way we played back then, I could say. Like you said, there was no um, social media back then, so you don't really under you don't really see the behind the scenes stuff that you do now with with teams. You know what I mean? So uh, after they win games, you just they just you just can only imagine what they're doing. But now nowadays, you, people are posting. You can see so and so had a bonfire, or so and so went to go party, or whatever. I mean, for the most part, we were never like that. I mean, we never partied hard like that as a team. You know what I mean? Like, we would always have get-togethers and stuff. But um, after winning championships, there was always a – I mean, after the, after the games, there was always an alumni dinner. Somebody was hosting for us. You know, we always kept that family-type atmosphere. And, and, you know, that I think that really helped also to create good chemistry for our teams. The culture – it really started with your practices. And the reason why I remember that is when I did an interview with Ren Ren a few years ago, he always told me that when it, when it was game time, he didn't feel pressure. He didn't really feel exhausted because what you guys were doing during the games, it was 10 times crazier in practice. That's what he said, basically, because Coach Franz really put you guys to an obstacle course to get you guys prepared for pressure pack situations. What were the practices like? Were they as intense as Ren Ren described it? And what was it like for you coming into La Salle and having Ren Ren Ritualo, whose jersey is now retired, as basically a mentor to the whole team? Um, everyone, everyone brought a little bit of something to the team. You know what I mean? Every year. Um, my, my first year in 99, it was Don and Dino who really led the team. You know, they set a precedent for... Um, how practices were, and Mo and Jose and Willie Wilson and those guys, man, you know, and, and we, the way we played the game, a real game, we would press the whole game, mm -hmm. right? And that's how our practices were every day, you know what I mean? So when we reached the game, it seemed easier for us. You know, we always almost felt like a little relieved because, oh, now I don't have to go against Ren Ren. I don't have to chase Renneran around. Now I don't have to go against Mon Jose, who's top five all-time defender in the, in the UAP. Or I don't have to go against um, Dino Aldeguer, who's uh, smarts and, and you know what I mean? Just so um, practices were really intense. I mean, like I told you, we try to build a culture and, and uh, working hard every day and go, getting after each other. And, and when you weren't, pulling your weight we let you know uh, we have this we have hazings in our in our team so <laughs> for guys not not pulling the weight um you know so um we would have coach Franz would have this thing where um we would have to run our plays um five on zero and then if he didn't if one guy didn't remember the play the whole team would run except for that guy 
So oh, you could just wow. imagine how how all other sixteen guys felt with one guy just watching us run. Yeah. You know what that I mean? Never so, happened to you? You ever became the guy yeah, who no, Nah, it never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> so we gotta kinda keep everybody in check ourselves because not everybody likes to run. You know what right. I mean? So um but I could tell you for one thing, we were I think we were the best in shape team just by pressing every day in practice for three hours and mm-hmm. and so when it came game time it was we already knew what to do. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite memories as a kid, I was a LaSalle fan growing up, you know. I guess I can say that now. <laughs> But one of my favorite memories was uh two thousand one and that finals game three, LA Tenorio, okay, just explodes, go off goes off for thirty points. And the Ateneo was up five with about four or five minutes left. Then the big guys actually, ironically, bail you guys out. Willie and um, Carlo. Then the next season, 2002, you know, Ren Ren's gone. You guys are going for a fifth title, but Ateneo is hungry. They, they've suffered the losses that LaSalle did before. So now they're the hungry team on the rise. How often do you remember 2002? Like, Does it still play in your head? Do you have any regrets from the game three of that series? And where do you think it fell apart? Good question. That 2002 series, I've never watched the game three, actually. I have never watched a replay. Um, I haven't watched a replay of that series ever because mm-hmm. um, I could almost pretty much play it back, you know, play it in the back of my mind already. Of course, it was unfortunate that we lost, but we, we lost to a good team. Um, they were a good, they were a really good team. You had Rich Alvarez, and like you said, LA would really went off. Enrico, of course, who was always at the top of the MVP standings, and we took him. I mean, we took him to a game three. I mean, we, it could have gone to anybody. What I think what fell apart was when when we won game two. There was going to be a game. It was supposed to be a game three, like right away. All right. And and I think they postponed it or they delayed it or something like that for another week, and that kind of killed our momentum and. I think that's and leading up to the game, we we like would have mass like every day, sometimes twice a day. So, <laughs> I mean, how much how much praying do we need, man? You know what <laughs> I mean. But <laughs> so it was. I think it was it was tough. It was tough for us leading up to that game. I mean, you would you would have a mass in the morning mm-hmm. or in the afternoon, and you would practice, and you have another mass, and and do the same thing again for wow. the next. 10 days leading up to the game. So I think it was, um, for me, I think it was maybe about three or four ga- days before the game where I was, I couldn't sleep anymore. You know, I was just so anxious to play and kind of drained all my energy, I think. And then, you know, we just lost to a better team, I think. Do you think, now that you look back on it, that when Ateneo ended your streak, because you guys were about to go undefeated and go practically straight to the finals. I mean, you guys were one win away then Ateneo ended your streak. Do you think that was the turning point of that season? Because you guys were on a roll. Like, Ren Ren was gone, but LaSalle was still defending champion, you know, beating everyone up. And then here comes Ateneo out of nowhere. They struggle early in the season. Then they get momentum. How big was that? I think that gave them that gave them um, confidence, you know, that they can play with us. And kind of, like you said, we ran off 13 straight or, or 12 straight. And we kind of... Um, had a chokehold already on all the other teams mm-hmm. and playing them last game of the, of the, of the elimination round with a chance to go straight to the finals. Um, I think they came to play and they understood 
the the whole importance of of beating us that game. Like I said, man, all the teams are are ha- are coming for us. You know what I mean? And they're always getting ready for us. And I think that's a perfect situation where you let your guard down. Any team can beat you. And mm-hmm. for them, that was a confidence builder. I think they went and played UE in the in the final four. Yeah, Jack, Jack Shea's famous shot. Exactly. They were they were, they had to beat them twice. So I think beating us kind of gave them that confidence. Like, hey, we have a chance to do this. Yeah. And they did it. I mean, can't take a, take anything away from them. Um, they they came to play. Um, that's I mean that's what basketball is all about, man. It's who's playing that best, their best ball at the right time. That's you know true. what I mean. And that's something I learned in the pros. And I think they. Unfortunately for us, they were playing the best basketball at the right time. We kind of peaked by going 12 and 0, 13 and 0, whatever it was, and then we kind of stood on our high horse, thought that we can just walk through this game and we'll walk into the finals and beat whoever is there. But we got we got um, humbled by that by that. What was it like in the locker room after Game Three? Because that was the end of practically half a decade of championship run after championship run. So do you remember what the scene was like, what Coach Franz said and all of that? Because you probably knew it was your last UAP game as well. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. I really can't recall what happened. Um, I knew after the game, we there was a big like celebration supposed to be set up at school. So yeah. all of us went to school. And you could, under, you could just imagine like how weirdly solemn the whole situation was you know what i mean like there wasn't no celebration there wasn't any bonfire it was just us pretty much sulking in each other's arms and like you know what i mean not not trying to look any alumni in the eye kind yeah. of like because <laughs> we felt the- bad i mean yeah we felt bad for losing i mean we felt bad for the community we felt bad for ourselves so of course i mean you're 19, 20-year-old kid at the time, and the whole world just pretty much fell on you. So, I mean, in the locker room, I can't, I can't really recall anything that was said or, you know what I mean, anything drastic or anything like that. There's something that I do want to ask you, and I know it might be a little bit of a touchy subject. You probably know what it might be. So if you don't feel like answering it, I totally understand. But if you do, you know, you might want to set the record straight. I'm sure, I mean, I'd appreciate it a lot. I'm sure others would be curious to hear In the days after you guys lost Game 3, there were some nasty rumors going around about you. Without really going much into the specifics, basically to make it brief, some people were assuming that you threw the game or that you were paid to throw the game. And some people have come out to your defense. A lot of prominent LaSalle alumni have come to your defense and said that, you know, Mike didn't do that. There were some that were still noisy, of course. You know, as a kid at that time, I'm like, what's going on? These things happen in basketball games. Don't they just go out and play ball, right? Right, but, right. Like you said, you were 19, you were 20, you were a kid. This must have been like a tornado going on in your head. What was the whole process like for you, especially once you started hearing all these nasty rumors? I couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? Like, like I was shocked by it, to tell you the, tell you the truth. Mr. Capistrano, He was our team manager at the time, and he's always been a big supporter of me and through my through throughout my LaSalle days. And I would go to his office, and we would have lunch and stuff. And he called me in one day, and then he he me and him had a one-on-one talk about it. And I just pretty much told you the same thing. I mean, I told him the same story I told you where I about four or five 
days leading up to the game, I was losing sleep. I don't know why I was losing sleep, you know. Um, I just thought it was being anxious or whatever. And he kind of related to me saying that um, he used to play track. He was a track and field star during his, during his LaSalle times. And he said his parents at the time never came to watch him play. Compete, yeah. And compete. And it, w- it was one day where he was going to compete for the championship or something like that or for a medal. He finally invited his parents to come watch. And same thing happened to him. Two, three days leading up to the, to the meet, he knew his parents were coming. So it kind of psychologically kind of messed with him. And he said he couldn't sleep and he did bad in the, in the meet. So um, that coming from him, I knew everything was and, and he, how he can relate to me from that. I knew I was going to be okay. You know what I mean? Cause were you, were you so, anxious because your parents were coming to watch you in game three too? No, no, no. My parents were still in, in America at the time. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it was just the, how could you say the begat ng little, yeah, we got done a little, correct. Yeah, we got done a little. Finally started to creep in, you know what I mean? Like I told you, it would have been so much better if the game happened right away, <laughs> right away. like it was regularly regularly supposed to be scheduled, but it didn't happen that way. And unfortunately, we lost. And I guess there has to be a scapegoat, and I guess I was a scapegoat for some of the LaSalle haters or LaSalle or people that thought that I really did take yeah. money for it for that before 2002 i mean you guys did lose but you did help lasalle win two championships in the years before that and it's not it wasn't like you were just you know a role player you were a star player for the team so what was the initial emotion that you felt once you heard that these rumors were going around of course shock and yeah i was a little bit at one point where i was thinking like oh if it's some of the some of the people from lasalle saying this then you know what I mean? It it it, it hurts. It hurts because, like you said, I put it in a lot of sweat and tears from '99 to 2002, and I think for the most part we did good. When you're a 20, 21 year old kid and you hear that type of stuff, you know, so many things can just go through your mind. But now, for me, I've learned that opinions, other people's opinions, don't really affect me. You know what I mean? And looking back, I wish I would have that same mentality. But you know. Things happen for a reason. Did you have one more year of eligibility? Were you able to come back in 2003 if you wanted to? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the rules back then or how it goes because I already played a year in the States. So mm-hmm. I think that might have counted against me. Right, yeah. I don't really know. I don't know if it was five years to play out of seven years or something like that. But yeah, I think I, I, think I was ripe already for um, for the pros, yeah, I already had it. I just had my baby May of 2002, so you yeah. know what I mean. I had to I had my priorities already. Correct. Yeah. When you think, you know, there's the saying na ang sarap maging lasalista. I think it was even a term that was said back when you were still in college. Did Did you feel the same way? Do you still feel the same way? Yung feeling na, you know, I'm so happy I was I was a Lasallian. I have that green blood running through me. Or was Lasall more of an avenue for you to get to the pros i wouldn't you know i wouldn't i wouldn't change that experience for anything else you know what i mean um like i told you I, when i when i was in the states i didn't know anything about philippine basketball you know what i mean and and it wasn't until i came out here in 99 where i seen other teams and and other schools and how their players played i could say and how we played you know it was just different to me i always felt that we were fortunate to play for LaSalle. 
you know, it was a, it was a um, a blessing for us, for all of us to be part of that team. Yeah, I mean, playing for the style, I would, I mean, I wouldn't change it for anything else. Um, I had good memories, despite that one game. I mean, <laughs> that one game was not going to kill any all, all the other good memories that I had. You know what I mean? From '99 yeah. all the way to 2002, we had a good run. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, things just happen for a reason, man. And and yeah, so that mugging Basilista. <laughs> did you already have an idea entering the draft that you would go number one overall? Like, did you know only the day of the draft when your name was finally announced, or was it something that you had an idea even beforehand? I was in the states from the end of the UAP until the draft, which was like the first week of January, I think. Right. And it wasn't until when I flew back in for the draft, maybe three or four days before it, when I started hearing news of, oh, you might go number one. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it didn't really matter. You know what I mean? It was just a chance to get to the next level for me. No matter what team for me, uh, who I got drafted by or what number or whatever, I just always wanted to go in with the mindset of something to prove. You always got something to prove. You know what I mean? And But when my name was called for that number one pick, there was like a whole, you know what I mean, weight off my shoulders. Yeah, the all that, off your back. All that controversy like you were, we were talking about earlier. And, of course, that was playing in the back of my mind. Like, what if these PBA teams really think you did this or did Take that or whatever? You, yeah. Take it against me. And I asked Tim Cohn that when he drafted me. We were able to have a, a car ride home together because we lived in the same village. Right. And it was like one of our early practices. I asked him, I said, Coach, I think you know or have you heard stuff about me during my college, you know, college career, um, about me selling games or taking money. And he said, and he's, he said he didn't believe any of it and that he went through the same thing with Johnny um, Arbientos during the, during his PBA career. He just told me that like that, like other people's opinions don't really affect or shouldn't affect what I think about myself or how other people should, you know, Think about it. don't let don't let that stuff affect you and how you go about yourself every day and how you carry yourself every day and how you practice. So the more that you worry about them, then the more you're going to be affected. And it's something I also you know kind of preach to my kids and and my teammates before you know we would always have these meetings and stuff and I try to tell them like there's so many so much stuff you can only can control, you know what I mean. So let's not worry about the stuff we can't control. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the, one of the early lessons that I've learned. So you were a cool cat, not just on the court, but outside the court too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I try to be, I mean, I'm just a laid back Cali yeah. guy, man. You know, it's interesting because back then, you know, LaSalle was my favorite team in the UAP and Alaska was my favorite team in the PBA. So it was like a smooth transition. Like I was watching you in college and I was like, oh, now I'm going to watch him play for the team I like following the most in the pro league. But the first season, you had some difficulty, you know, getting used to the triangle offense. And understandably so, because you went from this all-out, fast-paced, transition-oriented offense to a set-up, slow-it-down, feed-the-post offense. What do you remember from the first year in Alaska? And how many conversations did you have to have with Coach Tim before you guys were able to find that middle ground of your talent and what he wanted to do on the court? I think from the, from the get-go, from the beginning, he, he gave me the keys to the offense. Um, he kind of let me um, find my way. He would always say that to me. You got to find your way. He could only show me different scoring options and different reads off the triangle, but he always told me, you got to find your, find your niche in this offense. And with the help of, of my teammates, I was able to do that. And 
we won the we won the championship in the second conference. The Fiesta um, one, yeah. Ollie Peak was the best player, and he was you know he's he was one of my mentors early on in in the PBA. We had I think eight or nine Americans on our team at that time. Mm-hmm. So the chemistry the chemistry was there. It was just a matter of being able to flow together on 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 the court. Off the court, we were all fine. You know what I mean? Like I told you, we were nine or eight or nine or ten Americans. Our coach was American, so getting getting along off the court was easy. But we had, I think, six or seven new guys. So it wasn't just only me learning the triangle. We had six or seven new guys trying to learn also. And of course, there were some triangles where there was really looked like a square or a circle. But <laughs> we event, I think, we eventually you know, found our way and we, yeah. we won the championship in the second second conference and the third conference, I think we made it to the semis. But there was a lot of conversation between me and Coach Tim about, you know, different in- intricacies of the of the triangle and defenses and, you know what I mean? Like, what does he expect from me, from what, what I should bring to the team and stuff like that. So yeah. it was it was a learning, a great learning experience, I could say, for my first year. Um, the triangle teaches you a lot about spacing and learning how to move without the ball and reading, reading and reacting to your defense. Right. Not too many plays are called. You pretty much just go with the flow of the offense and how the defense is playing you. So right. Later on in your PBA career, you played for more teams as you became a veteran, the veteran presence. But throughout the prime of your career, you played with Alaska, you played with the San Miguel franchise, you ended up in Ginebra. And it was just unfortunate that your ACL injuries took place while you were in your prime because I remember before you got injured, that was really when you were about to hit the peak of your pro career. You know, you're getting used to the pro game. Your mind is um, synchronizing with your talents. What do you remember about the time you got injured? Was it just really like a depressing moment for you? Because like I said, you were starting to get the, you're starting to get used to the pro game. Of course, when it first happens, you, I mean, I don't know the, I didn't know the, the, how big the injury was, of course, until you get diagnosed and then you get x-rayed and all that MRI. Mm-hmm. But when I found out it was an ACL injury, at first it was devastating. I knew my career wouldn't be over. Like, I just looked at it as another building block. I mean, another um, wall to push through. And looking back, like I said earlier, that everything happens for a reason. And when I got injured, it really taught me the different body parts. I mean, how, how everything is connected going through rehab and, and all that twice actually really humbles you at first. But I mean, it's just another challenge to really get through. Um, I didn't look at it as mess, um, ending my career. I mean, a lot of people tell me that, Oh, I think you would have had a better career um, if you never got hurt, hurt, but we would never know. You know what I mean? Like there's always at, if, ands or buts, everything happens for a reason. And I'm just happy that I was able to play 16 years off two ACLs and building a lot of relationships on and off the court and being able to network with a lot of, a lot of players on and off the court. Who knows if I, if I didn't get hurt, I wouldn't have the relationships that I have now. And I kind of wouldn't, wouldn't want to trade those two. You know, your resume, it's, Pretty impressive, your pro career resume, because you won, I mean, sorry, you played 16 years, you won three championships, you were part of arguably one of the greatest PBA draft classes of all time, and you played for a number of successful teams, which got R, you put up the stats. 
I know that you recently just retired, but when you picture it 10, 20 years from now, you're probably an older man. You probably, you're not probably balling as much. Maybe you're more of a coach. But when you look back on your pro career, how do you think you're going to remember it? Wow, good question. How would I remember my career 20 years from now? I don't know. I mean, it went, it went by so fast. I know that. Um, and that's one thing that my high school coach told me. He sat me down in his office, and I remember it was like going into my senior year, and I was getting all these letters from, like, Rhode Island and, like, Notre Dame, and I'm, like, in my head, I'm, like, getting big-headed because I'm, like, oh, shit, I'm getting I'm getting <laughs> recruited by these big – yeah, by these big D- D- Division One colleges. And he sat me down and he just said, you know, just be humble, keep your head down and keep working cause, and enjoy every moment because it's going to fly by so fast. Yeah. And he was talking about my high school. I look back and the 16 years and plus the five years at LaSalle, it went by so fast. Mm-hmm. And hopefully when I look back, I can still have some of the relationships that I have now with – a lot of my teammates, um, my former teammates, actually, and hopefully my my kids can look back and say that I that I play the right way, mm-hmm. and that's something I've been trying to teach my kids now. I mean, one goes to LaSalle, Green Hills, and one goes to UST. He's 18, about to be a senior, so I'm kind of living through them now and trying to share my experiences with them and telling them, you know, I got the blueprint for getting to the professional level. All you have to do is just follow my pretty much follow my lead Mm -hmm. and I just like I told you man like I I always played the game because it was fun for me Mm -hmm. I never looked at it as a business never looked at it as business and I just love to play I love to compete even now I I still love to compete um now it's just now I can't I can't run as (laughs) as I would (laughs) like I can't get up and down the court I was like but if we play half court yeah I can play all day um, I just love to compete and I just hope that if I, when I look back, I can just tell myself that I competed every time that I, that I was on the court. And I yeah. think I, I've done that. Well, one more thing you'd probably tell your kids too, is that if they do get a tattoo, maybe not Cartimar, right? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people say that the kids now are spoiled because they, you know, they have social media and all that stuff now, but I don't think they were spoiled. I think we were spoiled back then because we didn't have that. So our only choice was to go out and play basketball, and that's mm-hmm. to me was 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 more of a spoil, uh, more of being spoiled. Yeah. Um, now, <clears throat> now I just think these kids nowadays just have to. I mean, with so much going around YouTube and all that stuff, um, Instagram and Facebook, they just have to learn what information is good for you and what's not. You know right. what I mean? Like you got to be able to see through all the fake stuff and like all that uh, popularity contests and stuff like that, man. And just mm-hmm. keep your head down and keep working. Awesome. Mike, thank you. I appreciate it a lot. And I'm excited to see what you're going to do as an assistant coach for Benilde. I'm sure that those kids will learn a lot from you. And they, when they bring up the topic of you playing back in the day, you'll probably be like, yeah, nah, that was like <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> but you'll probably school them once in a while too. Uh, I try, you know, I mean, I try to a little bit, but I've been really, I mean, since the pandemic, I've been concentrating on my son. So I think he's going to be up and coming. He had a really good season for UST this past year. Yeah. And Cy Young, the, um, the pandemic hit. Um, yeah. He'll kind of kill his momentum. But we've been working. We've been working. So try to get him ready 
there's a lot of good competition out there from Ateneo and NU and FEU. Yeah. Uh, so like I told him, man, just keep working. Um, don't expect anything. You got to go out and get it. You got to go out and earn it. You got to go out and get it. So your, your eldest son is about to play college ball. Uh, he has one more year in high school. Okay. So this was supposed to be his senior year. So I don't, we don't, we're not sure yet of what's going to happen with the season. And yeah. like, cause he's, I think he's, he's going to be over age if they, unless they take all those rules back. So yeah, everything is still up in the air. So I, I just got to keep him ready. Whoever, who, who knows what happens if he has to go to college right, right away, at least physically, he'll be ready mentally. Uh, he's going to need more experience on that. <laughs> Any idea yet where he's going to play college ball? Not yet. I mean, with the pandemic going on, nobody really knows what's going on. You know what I mean? Right. So, I mean, NBA is having trouble. Some guys don't want to play. Some guys do want to play. Some guys want to open another league. <laughs> so, <laughs> we don't know what's going on, man. I mean, let alone here in the, in the, in the Philippines. I mean, yeah. we've got record high cases every day. Um, so, we can't really blame guys for not wanting to come and play right away you know they got families and stuff that they got to take care of and yeah. they got to keep healthy who knows when they start practicing they catch something they don't want to bring that home mm-hmm. so they got to figure something out so i mean it's tough it's tough a lot of a lot of schools call it close their their sports programs you know what yeah. i mean and so it's the new normal man we're gonna do play with a mask on <laughs> you know it might just come to that <laughs> but i hope you guys stay safe and basketball is awesome but i'm sure there are more important things in life than hoops and we'll always exactly. have hoops back eventually exactly hopefully hopefully i mean that's one thing i've learned with this pandemic man it's kind of kind of made everybody take a step back you know what i mean and like mm-hmm. really know what what really counts in their lives which is family and health right and um, <clears throat> I think it's just the one way of human, I mean, mother nature and God just, um, putting everybody back in their place and trying to understand, like, you don't need the finest cars. You don't need all the money in the world. You don't need posts of you <laughs> working out every day or like, you know what I mean? Posting you're at, you're here or you're there. I mean, you're just kind of flooding everybody's feet, but anyway, that's <laughs> for another debate. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. And I hope to catch you soon. Yeah. Peace out, bud. All right, bro. That was it for our episode with Mike. I hope you enjoyed our trip down memory lane. If you've got the time, check out our past episodes. Peace.